Good morning. Welcome to the message part of our Sunday service. Glad that uh, we all get to still spend time in God's Word together. Before we begin, please, I just want to open with prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time before us. God, I know personally there have been a couple days recently where I've wanted to feel discouraged or down about what's going on right now, but it's been such a beautiful reminder of who you are to have spent this time studying trust. And so I thank you for being the same God that you always are. And I thank you for having a plan. And I thank you for being in control. And I thank you for working all things for your glory. So, Lord, this morning, as we prepare to open your word, we ask that you would speak to us, that you would teach us more about who you are so that we could know you better, so that we could love you more, and that we could reflect you better to the world around us. We give you this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you joined us last week or you watched the service a little bit later, you know that last week I spoke on this idea of revolutionary, right? I introduced the concept of Christians should lead revolutionary lives. And what I mean by that is lives that are new and different from the world around us. And like I said last week as well, this idea, this word revolutionary, it's been on my heart and on my mind for months, going back to last fall. So over the last six, seven months, as I've been personally studying the Bible and reading through the Bible on my own, I've been doing so with this question in the back of my mind of, okay, if I'm convicted that my life needs to be revolutionary compared to the world around me, then what goes into a revolutionary life? Right? So as I've been reading the New Testament, the Old Testament, working through all of Scripture, that question is, what makes a life revolutionary? It has been constantly at the forefront of my mind as I've looked at the passages and looked at the stories of the teachings of the church in the New Testament and the people in the Old Testament and what Jesus taught and what Jesus modeled. And one of the things that I am absolutely convinced of should mark a revolutionary life is trust. Right? When you look at the people in the Old Testament, the people who demonstrated trust in God, or on the negative, the times when the Israelites didn't demonstrate trust in God and what that revealed about their heart, you look at what Jesus taught, you look at what the church, the early church in Acts and in Romans and in 1 Corinthians and as Paul was doing his missionary journeys and writing these letters, you look at the trust that was involved in that. And I really firmly have become convinced that trust needs to be a cornerstone of the revolutionary life. So I want to look at that this morning. Specifically, I want to ask some very tough questions about our relationship with trust with God. This is going to be kind of a two-part topic. This week we're going to look at trust as far as it goes with, with how we trust God. And then next week we'll look at trust as it relates to our relationships with one another and how we trust one another and if we are trustworthy and what goes into that. But with all things, I want to start with God. And so this week we're going to be in Daniel 3 to begin. We're actually going to be in the Old Testament for almost the entirety of the message. We'll reference one passage in Acts, but the rest of the, the verses this morning will come from the first half of your Bible, whether you're using a physical Bible or an app. We're going to be in the first half of things this morning. And I want to start with Daniel 3. And Daniel 3 is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or if you grew up with Christian media, Shadrach and Benny, 
uh, right, from the Veggie Tales. And I want to provide a little bit of background to these three because when we begin in Chapter 3, we're looking specifically at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But I want to start with just a little bit of how did we get here, what was going on in their lives to lead up to this point. And so King Nebuchadnezzar, he had captured a lot of Israelites. They had been brought to his kingdom. They were serving in his kingdom now. And specifically in Daniel 1, verses 6 and 7, and then 19 and 20 were introduced to these three. Daniel 1, 6. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. So these four, Daniel for whom the book is named, and then these three that we're going to look at in this chapter, these four were singled out of everyone else who had been kidnapped and brought to the kingdom. And then what do we learn about them when we move just a little bit on to the end of the chapter, verses 19 and 20? The king spoke with them, and among all of them, none were found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. Okay, so we're introduced to these, these four men, but we're going to look at the three of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? We're introduced to them, and we're told that he was so impressed with them and blown away with their wisdom and their understanding from God that he constantly consulted with them, and every time he found them ten times better than the magicians and enchanters and satraps and sages in his own kingdom, in his own people. So keep that in mind, okay? Keep that relationship between these three who are really, you know, prisoners with all these other nobility and wise men who were used to a place of prominence in the kingdom before they came along. All right, so you've got that in the back of your mind. Now let's look, let's Turn forward just one or two pages and go to Daniel 3 and pick back up with Shakrach and Benny. And so what happens in Daniel 3, we're not going to read the entire chapter, but in the first seven verses, King Nebuchadnezzar builds a golden idol. And it doesn't specify if it's an idol of a god specifically, if it's an unknown god, if it's an idol of himself, if it's just kind of an object. Right? Some biblical scholars say, no, it was more of an obelisk. It wasn't even a figure of a person or you know, a representation of a deity. But whatever it is, Nebuchadnezzar erects this idol. And he commands everyone that when the music plays, they are to bow down and worship it. And that's significant, that bow down and worship it. Because the bow down would have been demonstrative of his political authority. You have to bow down and show reverence to my commands. Then the worship part, that would have been Nebuchadnezzar moving in on religious authority. See, no one disputed that he was the supreme political authority as king. But when he passed this new degree to now you have to bow down and worship, he was now trying to claim for himself both political supreme authority and religious supreme authority. Okay, so he's given this edict, when the music plays, stop what you're doing, bow down, and worship the idol that I have set up. And that's where I want to pick up. We're going to pick up in verse 8 after he's given this first command, right? And after the music has played now. This has happened where the music has played, everyone else has bowed down and obeyed the king. And we pick up in Daniel 3, 8. 
Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. Pay attention to the words that are used. They maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jew, Jews whom you have appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Did you catch what was just said about them? So in the beginning, in Daniel 1, we looked at, right, that Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed with these three that he find them, found them ten times wiser than all of his previous important officials, right? And now we see that they've been appointed over the affairs of the provinces. So this has got to be tough. I mean, put yourself just for a moment in the position of the Chaldeans here, right, of Nebuchadnezzar's people, and that sounds kind of odd, but think about it from their perspective. They were used to a position of prominence. They were the ones the king came to for questions and advice and help me understand this. They had the authority and the power and the respect. And now prisoners, right, kidnapped prisoners come along and they now get elevated to positions that I used to be in? That's got to be hard for them to take, right? So I have to believe there are elements of bitterness and envy and jealousy here. I think that's why it says, you know, Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. These people were not fans of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They had an agenda. They had an axe to grind against these three. They'd been appointed over the affairs of the province. These men, O king, this is picking back up in the second half of verse 12. These men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. And so we start with, right, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're not trying to make a scene. They're not trying to, they didn't march before the king and declare, we refuse to obey you. They were trying to respect the authority, but also do what they knew was right. And so they quietly, on their own, had continued to worship God as they knew they were supposed to. They'd refused to worship this idol. But these people with an agenda against them brought their attention. They really tattled on them, right? They brought their attention to King Nebuchadnezzar, and they said, look what these Jews are doing. What are you going to do about this? They are blatantly disobeying you. This is verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, lyre, trigon, harp, bagpipe, and every other kind of music to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. See, he almost he almost doesn't want to believe it at first, right? He's like, is this true? If you're ready to do this, that, okay, that's well and good. But... This is at the end. This is verse 15. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? See, we're seeing the underlying issue here with Nebuchadnezzar. We're seeing a heart of pride. This is all about the king, right? I mentioned how setting up this golden image and commanding people to bow down and worship was his, his motion forward into, I am both political authority and religious authority. And then he says to them, this is what I will command and what God will be able to deliver you out of my hands. We see the pride in the heart of Nebuchadnezzar. Listen to how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answer. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. They say, look, we don't answer to you. We have no need to answer your accusations about this. We serve God, and he is able to deliver us because he alone is God. But then listen to verse 18. I think these three words that start off verse 18 might be the most powerful three words that you can look at as a lesson for trust. I'm going to back up one to verse 17, but then listen to how verse 18 starts. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, this was unconditional trust that these three men were demonstrating. They were saying, look, we know what God has commanded. We know that God is the only God, that he alone is the religious authority. We will obey him because we know he will deliver us. But if not, we will still obey him because we know he is God and he alone is worthy of worship. That but if not is incredible, right? It reveals a heart that is committed to trusting the Lord and obeying the Lord independent of circumstances, independent of outcome, these three men have declared our trust is in God regardless of what happens to us. And this is the only time I want to jump forward into the New Testament because you see the same idea, and I love that phrase earlier where they said, we have no need to answer you because we serve God. In Acts chapter 4, 19 and 20, Peter and John have been brought before the authorities for preaching the gospel of Jesus, right? And they've been told to stop. They've been said, you have no right to say this. You must stop preaching this. This is what Peter and John say, Acts 4, 19 to 20. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. They've said the same thing that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Uh uh-uh, we don't answer to you. You're not the final authority. We will submit to you as long as your authority does not clash with what God has commanded. But the moment you try and tell us to do something against what God has said, the moment you try and impose on us anything other than God's rule, we will not submit to you. We will submit to God because we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. We cannot help but do what God has commanded us to do. That's our only option. That's what Peter and John said in Acts. That's what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying here in Daniel 3. They're saying, "Mm -mm. we have one choice, and that's to obey God in all things. Whatever that means for us, that's up to you. We're going to obey God. You decide what you're going to do about that. And in Daniel 3, we see what Nebuchadnezzar decides to do about that. Because now his pride has been affronted. They have blatantly now in front of everybody refused to obey him. So he flies off into a further rage and he orders them thrown into the fire. Right, And it talks about they stoked the flames up seven times hotter than usual. It was so hot that when the guards came forward to throw them in, the guards were burned up by the fire and they tossed them in tied up. But then something happens. Nebuchadnezzar looks into the furnace And he says to his advisors, he says, wait a minute, didn't we throw three men in there? And weren't they tied up? And they're like, yeah. 
He says, okay, well, I see four men walking around freely. What is going on? This fourth man has the appearance like the Son of God. What? And Nebuchadnezzar can't believe it. And so he calls out. This picks back up in verse 26. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace. He declared, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Isn't that interesting? Did you catch how he referred to them? When they first came before him, he just said in verse 14, he said, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve me or worship the golden image that I have set up? But now in verse 26, he says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. He's realized who's in control. He's realized who really is God. Nebuchadnezzar in this moment realizes he doesn't have the supreme religious authority. He says, servants of the Most High God. Okay, they've claimed that they worship the only God. Clearly, their God came through for them. He must be the Most High God. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire. And the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not had any power over the bodies of those men. The hairs of their head were not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Nebuchadnezzar was blown away by their trust. And then he was astounded that their God came through, that our God comes through. He saw this and he couldn't help but recognize they are servants of the Most High God. Clearly their God is the God. They trusted in him and he came through. So don't harm them. Don't tell them who they can't worship. And if you try to, he goes on and he says, if you try and get in the way of them worshiping their God, you will be destroyed, right? Because he, he, is, he is just floored by this revelation of the Most High God and His power. And it all started with a but-if-not trust. Because when we demonstrate but-if-not trust, it provides an opportunity to reveal to the world around us just how great our God is. And I want to share a but-if-not trust story from our own congregation. And I have permission uh, from this family that I'm about to share. There was a family in our church who, and I became aware of this several months ago, they told me this, they were not tithing, but they became convicted of the reality that that's what's commanded of us. They knew, they talked about it, husband and wife, okay, we know we're supposed to tithe and we know we're not. They looked at their finances and they realized with the bills we have due, with, with what we have going on, we cannot afford to begin tithing. And here is how they phrased it to me. When they first, when I first heard the story, this was how they phrased it. It stuck in my mind. It was beautiful. It was incredible to hear this. They said, we looked at all of our financial situations and our bills, and we knew we couldn't afford to tithe. But we knew that God commands us to tithe, and he tells us he has us in his hands and will take care of us. So really, it was easy. We just had to obey, trusting that he would come through. And they began tithing. And here's, this is incredible. I, I love this little detail of the story. They specifically had one bill. Right when they started tithing, they had a bill coming up 
for a very odd random amount, right? Not like a generic nice round number. They had a specific bill due for an odd amount, and they knew if we start tithing this week, we will not be able to pay this bill. That same time where they started tithing, they received a check from, I think they said two jobs ago or something, right? They received a check that they were not counting on. They didn't know was coming. They had no knowledge that this money was on its way to them. But they received a check for a random odd amount that covered the debt that they had due. And when I talked to them more recently to say, hey, do I have your permission to share this story? You know, and I mentioned that that bill that was due in the check that came in. And I said, you know, that, that one time, right? And they said, no, that's been the continued story. As we've continued to tithe, not always knowing where money is going to come in from, they said, God has stepped up every time and blessed us when we don't know what we're going to do because we've continued to trust him with our tithe. That's incredible to me. I, I love stories like that. And when we talked about this, they, they stressed, they gave absolute permission to share their story on one condition. And I respect it entirely. They said, share our story, but don't share our names. Because we don't want people to look at us. We want people to look at God. We want our story to be a testimony of how faithful God is to come through for his people who trust them or trust him. And that's what I want to look at. As we look at an idea of a revolutionary life, I want us to take a good, long, hard look in the mirror and ask, do we trust God with a but if not trust? Because when you first ask that question, do you trust God? Yeah, of course. Of course I trust God, right? We say that all the time. Oh, we're trusting God. You know, I trust God that things will work out. I trust God that this will, you know, happen. I trust God for this. But do we trust God with but if not trust? God, I trust that you can heal my family member of whatever disease is crippling them. I trust that you can. But if not, you are still God and I will still worship you wholeheartedly. God, I trust you that losing my job right now will be okay. I trust that you will provide for us because you love us and you care for us. But if not, it won't affect my worship. It won't affect that I testify to how great you are to everyone around me. Do we have but if not trust? Do we demonstrate it with our words, with our actions? Or do we tend to fall into, all right, God, here's what I'm praying about. And if you come through, great. If not, are you there? Are you listening? Do you care? Maybe I need to rethink some things. Hey, Sam, I thought you were a Christian. You know, you don't seem to talk about it at all. Well, yeah, you know, there were some prayers I prayed and it, it didn't happen like how I wanted it to. So I don't know. I don't know. Maybe, maybe God can't come through like that. Do our lives demonstrate but if not trust? Or, like the example I just gave, is it more of conditional trust? And here's the issue. We have to realize how harmful and how wrong conditional trust is right this is for this we're going to turn to ezekiel listen to this in ezekiel 9 uh, the people of israel have sinned and they've continued sinning they're increasing in their sin they're abandoning and rejecting god at every turn and god is visiting out the consequences of their actions upon them and he's talking with ezekiel and ezekiel is seeing what's going to happen to the people of israel because of their sin and the rejection of god and this is Ezekiel 9. Then the Lord said to me, 
the guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great, exceedingly great, right? They weren't plateaued in their sin and their evil. It was exceedingly, it was increasingly. They were continuing to move further away from God. The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice. For they say, that's a small phrase, but you have to listen to that. You have to pay attention to that. Their guilt is exceedingly great. For they say, the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. See, the people of Israel constantly demonstrated conditional trust. When things were good, they were all about praising God and celebrating him and giving him what he was due. Right? When things were good, yeah, we'll bring the tithes to the Lord. We'll bring the offerings to the Lord. We'll listen to what he's commanded of us. We will live as he's commanded us. The moment things took a dip or started to go wrong for the Israelites, God's rejected the land. God has completely forsaken us. God doesn't see us. God doesn't listen to us. Where is God? And they started following the gods of the land around them. So in Daniel, you see this but-if-not trust, this unconditional trust. And in the Israelites and in Ezekiel, we see the opposite of that. We see a conditional trust. So when I think of a revolutionary life, which one do you think I'm thinking of? Which one do you think, as we read through the Bible, we see held up as the standard and as the example? A but-if-not trust. That would be revolutionary. That would be completely, radically different from the world around us. Because the world around us has placed its trust in so many things. And that's what I want to look at for the second half here. We looked at the first question of, is our trust but if not, or is our trust conditional? And related to the conditional trust, I want to ask a question, do we really think that genuine security can be found in anything other than God? Do we really think it wise to place our trust in anything other than the Lord? Do we trust God even when things are against us, even when things are going bad? Do we trust the Lord? Listen to Psalm 62, 1 through 8. This is Psalm 62. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory. My mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Right? It's this comparison and contrast of God alone is my salvation. He only is my rock. Trust in the Lord at all times, people, for he alone is our refuge. And elsewhere in the Psalms, and that we saw specifically, how long will people batter a man like a leaning fence, thinking to thrust him down from his high position? Right? And in the Psalms, we see the other things that people put their trust in. Listen to these. This is Psalm 20, 7 through 8. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Sam, we're not exactly riding around in horses and chariots right now. No, 
But back then, that would have been a sign of financial prosperity. That would have been a sign of military power. That would have been a sign of high standing, right? Prominence in society. Those are all things that people place their trust in right now. Their position in society, their money, their power, their might, their authority in any situation, their wealth, right? Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of our Lord. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. Psalm 49, 5 through 8. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me? Those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches. Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. Wealth and power will fall short. You can never accumulate so much that you can buy God's merit or got buy God's blessing. Right? Ezekiel 7.19, they cast their silver into the streets and their gold is like an unclean thing. Their silver and gold are not able to deliver them in the day of the wrath of the Lord. They cannot satisfy their hunger or fill their stomachs with it, for it was the stumbling block of their iniquity. That's so strong. That the thing they placed their trust in was the stumbling block of their iniquity. Trust in the Lord is a refuge. It is a shield. It is a support in times of trouble. Trust in anything else is the stumbling block of iniquity. So as we look at this idea of but if not trust in God versus conditional trust in God, if you're looking and considering it conditional trust in God, the follow-up question has to be, if you're not going to trust in God, what are you going to trust in? What are you going to place your trust in that is unyielding like God is? What are you going to place your trust in that cannot be shaken in the same way that God cannot be shaken? Are you going to trust your physical health? What happens when the medical diagnosis comes back negative or, you know, in a negative manner? Are you going to trust in your wealth? What happens when the stock market plummets and you lose points every minute? You're going to trust in your family? What happens when they're taken away? Are you going to trust in your job? What happens when it's taken away? Are you going to trust in your home? What happens when it burns down? And I don't take any of those things lightly, but I, I genuinely want us to ask, if we're not going to place unconditional trust in God, what else are we going to place our trust in? What else are you relying on to be as firm and immovable as the Lord? Because those verses lay out, that if we place our trust in anything other than God, it's the stumbling block of our iniquity. And so as we move from but if not trust to the opposite, to conditional trust, and then we look at that follow-up question of, okay, if my trust in the Lord is conditional, then what else am I trusting in? Do I not see the folly of that? I want to wrap up with one more psalm. Psalm 37, 3-5. to Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will act. Commit your way to the Lord. Verse, those passages start off with, Trust in the Lord and do good. That was the kind of trust we saw in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They trusted in God, and they committed their way to him. Because we trust that the Lord alone is God, and we trust that his commands are right, we will not worship you, King. We have committed our way to the Lord. Regardless of what happens to us, 
We have committed ourselves to God because we trust him. So the question that I want to wrap all of this up with is, look at your life. Can you truthfully say it is entirely committed to the Lord? This is a question I ask myself constantly. With the words that I say, the conversations that I have, the way I interact with people, the way I treat strangers when I'm driving, when I'm at the grocery store, is my way committed to God? Am I committed to obeying His commandments always? Am I committed to following His laws, to going where He goes, to following Him where He leads, even if I can't see what that looks like? Am I committed to living as He's called me to live, regardless of what that might mean for me? Regardless of how other people respond to me, regardless of how other people treat me, regardless of how other people choose to reply to my actions in life, have I committed my way to the Lord? Because the bottom line is, we won't commit to something we don't trust. We just won't, right? You're looking to invest in the stock market. You say, Sam, I've got a hundred bucks. Where, you know, what company should I invest in? I say, eh, you know, there's this kind of new company that, um, they declared bankruptcy twice, you know, but the, the guy in charge, he really thinks he's figured it out this time. Uh, everything in the past has failed. Um, but I, I think this time it's going to work out. Are you going to trust that company? No. So are you going to commit your money to that company? Absolutely not. We don't commit to what we don't trust. We tentatively engage with what we don't trust. You know, we maybe dip our, our toe in the end of the pool Okay, I'll, I'll kind of feel this out a little bit and maybe I'll, I'll hold most of it back, but I'll kind of, okay, because I don't trust what's in front of me, so I'm just going to kind of, you know, bounce off of it and see what that's like. So again, I ask, when we look at revolutionary lives, when we look at revolutionary trust, and we finish with Psalm 37, I ask, have we committed our way to the Lord because we entirely trust the Lord? Or are we holding back? Is our trust more conditional? Is our trust more of an ebb and flow based on how well things go for us? Or do we serve God with a but if not level of trust? It's a tough question. It's a question I've been asking myself regularly for months. Do I trust God enough to say, but if not? I want us to be able to say that. I want to be able to say, but if not, I will still obey the Lord, regardless of what this world may do to me. Regardless of what may happen to me, I will obey God in everything because I trust Him entirely. That's my prayer for us as people. It's my prayer for us as a church family, that we would be a church marked by this absolutely radical trust in the Lord. This week, I want to ask you, we've gotten away from this a little bit in past weeks, but we're back. We've, we've kind of had it with the emails, sending out follow-up questions, but I want to specifically give you some reading assignments this week. Read Psalm 73 and Psalm 77 with this idea of radical revolutionary, but if not trust in the Lord. Psalm 73 and 77, talk about them as a family. See what stands out to you. See what God is teaching you in these verses. But this is the question I want us asking ourselves this week. Please join me in prayer. God, thank you for being the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who appeared in the fire with them and saved them 
Thank you for being the God who looked at this couple in our church who knew they couldn't afford to tithe, but knew what you commanded. And so they stepped out in obedience. Thank you for coming through for them. In my own life, I think of the times when you've come through for me. I think of the stories I know of people you've come through for. I look at who you are, who you always have been, and I thank you for being a God that we can wholeheartedly trust. So what I ask is that you give us that courage and that heart to trust you even at a but-if-not level. That our trust wouldn't be conditional upon our circumstances. That our trust would be driven by how great you are. That we would be entirely committed to you. Whatever is holding me back from that, Lord, whatever is in my life that is preventing me from entire commitment to you, reveal it and destroy it. And I pray the same thing for our people so that we can be a body completely committed to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys have a great week. Uh, look for our devotional on Tuesday and our live session on Thursday. And then we'll see you again next Sunday as we look at trust within our own relationships and our own friendships.